young Christians, little theologians, who said this? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Do you know the answer? Who said that? Sabina, who said that? The evil queen. That's right, from Snow White. She would ask the mirror every day, and the mirror would answer, Thou, O queen, are the fairest in the land. Until one day, the mirror says, Snow White, O queen, is the fairest of them all. And this comparison, of course, fills the queen with doubt and then rage, and she sets off to rid the world of the fair Snow White. The mirror is a magic mirror. It's magic because of its knowledge. It has knowledge to see true beauty, and it's magic because it never lies. The magic mirror sees the true, the good, the beautiful, and then it never lies about it. Do you have a mirror at home? What kind of mirror do you have? Is it a handheld mirror, or maybe it's a mirror that hangs on the wall? There's some mirrors in our house that like you're supposed to look through and see yourself, like a bathroom mirror. But there are some mirrors that are in your house that are just decoration that you can see yourself in, but you rarely even notice most days because you just walk by. It's just hanging on the wall. It's not necessarily a mirror that you look at. When I was a kid, my parents had a mirror with lights in it. It made it look like the lights went inside Uh, in the mirror, inside forever. Have you ever looked at your reflection in a mirror while looking into a mirror? Where it shows another mirror, and then another mirror, and then another mirror. And if you look closely, it keeps going. It seems like into infinity. And your mirror and your reflection gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Today, I want you to draw me a picture of a mirror that you have in your house. And if you're able... Add to the picture yourself looking back at us from the mirror. Draw the mirror, in other words, and your reflection, and then show it to me after the sermon. We do have prizes. I don't know if they're out here today, but uh, Rachel has them. So if you draw one, bring it up, and we'll give you a prize. Second, I want you to listen in the sermon today for how God's law acts as a mirror. And not just God's law, by the way. In fact, There's so many things that tell us or show us what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. Listen in the sermon for how these mirrors can help us see who we are and who we're supposed to be, but can't really help us be those things. And lastly, talk to your parents. Ask them about mirrors they had in their house when they were kids. Ask them if they look like, look in a mirror or if they'd rather pass by and not look in a mirror, and ask them why. And also ask them if when they read their Bible, if sometimes it feels the same way, and what to do about it. All right, for the rest of us, the Hall of Mirrors, I don't know if you've heard of the Hall of Mirrors, it's the most famous room in the Palace of Versailles, and it was built to illustrate the power of Louis XIV and the grandeur of France. The room features 17 windows and 17 equally large mirrors composed of more than 350 mirrored surfaces. The mirrors were to convey back to the king his wealth by reflecting the outside of the castle 
into the interior of it. Through the windows, the light would show, reflecting off the mirrors on the back wall. And every time he looked in the mirror, the king would both see himself and the beauty of the castle. It would also reflect the interior light of the building from the candles all throughout the hall. It's a magnificent room. If you've been to the palace, I haven't, but I've seen pictures. It's a magnificent room which the king would walk through every day on the way, ironically, to the chapel. Here in Romans 3, Paul is nearing the end of his lengthy reflection on man's righteousness, his unrighteousness, and sin. He's dismantled Gentile righteousness and then Jewish righteousness, and now he says for us, even the law can't save us. The Jews had the law, but the law didn't save them. All the law did was act as a mirror. It held up a standard of righteousness given by God, and it acted like a magic mirror, and it said, this is the fairest, and it never lied. And Israel would look into it, and you can't make the inside look like the outside. The outside would reflect back on the inside, the beauty and the majesty, and what is left is simply, Paul says, knowledge of sin. Knowledge of all the ways we miss the mark, all the ways we don't measure up. And just to start, we don't just need the big L law for this. Like it isn't just the big L law of God that tells us we don't measure up. In the vacuum of the big L law, we will create a hall of mirrors of external righteousness, of ways that we think we can make our outside look like the inside. We have all our own hall of mirrors. So, your algorithm is a mirror. This is what Caitlin Tiffany outlines in an article in The Atlantic. She says, social media, particularly TikTok, is remarkably accurate in its algorithm." that it asks a mirror of sorts that can reflect the best and worst of a user back to themselves. She opens up the article this way. She says, something is wrong with me, and TikTok knows it. I can tell because its recommendation algorithm keeps providing me with videos only a horrible person would like. After exploring a slew of videos that TikTok expected her to enjoy, Tiffany admits defeat. Well, time to admit the real problem, she says. I'll never fix my feed because I don't want to. I like being trapped in an algorithmic loop of disgust and confusion. I can't stop myself from watching unsettling content all the way to the end, and I can't stop myself from sharing it. It's a little embarrassing that things have gone this far, but the embarrassment is fun. As much as I might insist that my algorithm has nothing to do with me or my personality, TikTok actually has a pretty accurate sense of what I want to see. I don't go online to laugh. I go online to scream. I like things that were made by people whose motivations are completely confounding to me. And I have to assume that there are many other kinds of people on TikTok who are looking for the same kind of experience, which is why TikTok is so reliable at providing it. When people complain that they've somehow ruined their personal algorithm, they probably know exactly what they've done. We are all working so hard every day at destroying one another's brains. 
And what's interesting about this quote is what she admits. She has a view of righteousness and unrighteousness. The unrighteousness for Caitlin is seeing things that make her want to scream, and it's a safe admission. But what if your TikTok algorithm pulls up something else, something more illicit, something you wouldn't want your friends or neighbors to know or see? Unclothed co-eds, cynical machinations about our world, recipe after recipe after recipe, stock tips and houses and cars that you wished you could own. And even that list goes from sketchy to less sketchy. The Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, presents us with this reality and forces us to question it. How much do these platforms know about us? What do they do with what they know, and how is it changing us in our world? It's fascinating and troubling. The sketchy thing, according to Kate Campbell, is that the mysterious and magical mirror that is an algorithm dictates how they function. The film features several former Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest executives, the ones responsible for creating the algorithms, speaking about them like a sci-fi film where the scientist has lost control of his own invention. In the documentary, the algorithm is personified with a trio of nefarious-looking questions looking to our characters, looking to manipulate our behavior for profit. These algorithms were created to offer us content on our feeds that appeal to our interests. The more we use the platforms, the more information they have about us, and the more they seem to know us. They know our likes and our dislikes, our habits and our idiosyncrasies. The algorithm seems like it knows exactly what what we're looking for. Like every one of us has had an experience where they talk about something, and minutes later it's featured as an ad on their feed. Many believe the devices are listening to them, but mostly we're just remarkably predictable to these algorithms. The law, the little L law of social media, tries to figure us out and make us meet its demands. Dave Zoll says, these machines have pegged us, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. Then Zoll quotes Megan O'Glyblin in an essay called Know Thyself. Algorithms like the gods of the ages past know us objectively because they see the world in petabytes from heights we cannot even fathom, and also because they think only in math, which has no opinions or so believed. But what do they have to say about us? So little of it is revelatory. This product, the algorithms claim, was purchased by people like you, since you like dark indie comedies. The contemporary experience of the absurd, to see oneself as the machines do, as a faceless member of data, of data, a soul reduced to the cruel language of consumer categories, by quarreling with predictive analytics is as futile as arguing with fate. The numbers don't lie. I did watch those movies. I did buy that product. What she's saying is that algorithms reveal just how readable we are. And this rubs against the grain of anyone who's been raised to value personal authenticity, which is basically all of us. In this world of individualism, we all value being an authentic individual. Zah comments, one of the allures of authenticity as a value is that it flatters. To be authentically yourself 
is to be unlike anyone else, singular, original, unique. You could almost say that a person is inauthentic to the extent that they are just like everyone else. The more you shed your conformity or uniformity, the more authentic you become, the more uncontainable. And again, the little L law, this time of social media, holds up to us a mirror and it says, be unique. And you look into the mirror and you realize you aren't that unique. And uniqueness itself is a faulty measure of becoming a self. Zal says, let's take it one step further. It's one thing for an algorithm to know what you'll like before you like it. It's another for an algorithm to anticipate the shape of your fears, the location of the potholes you're likely to step in, the undulations of your very soul. No one appreciates being reduced to a stereotype, but that's exactly what's happening here. And the problem isn't so much that we're being flattened out, but that these flattenings tend to be so accurate. Now, you might hear all this, many of you in this room, and go, well, I'm not really a social media person, and maybe you try to stay off. In fact, one of the ways you pride yourself at being authentic, the person that you are, is that you don't engage in them. You don't have time. You work too hard. And what's fascinating to me is that not engaging in social media becomes another mirror, Something to look to into and ask, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? I am, because I prefer reading a book. And then it becomes, what kind of books? And how many? And the cue in your Amazon cart becomes the measuring stick of your righteousness that you can't fail to master. The cart acts as a little L law. It reflects back onto you your worth and your value, the ways you measure up or you don't. And if it isn't books, maybe it's mountains, mountains to be attacked by bikes or feet. How many have you climbed? How high? How adventurous was your last ride? Did you almost die? There are mirrors everywhere. Our life is one big hall of mirrors, and we can't even measure up to it. And so Paul here builds up to a crescendo in chapter 3. Here he hammers out a chain of questions from the big L law, holding up a mirror to evince us that we are all ultimately under sin. Walk into the hall of mirrors, Paul says, and see who you are. Paul continues to say that if the Jews had the law, which made them the best of the lot, and yet they look into the mirror and they see the same thing, no one makes the grade. They too are under sin. This is a crucial motif for Paul. Paul rarely speaks of sins, but rather sin, singular, personified, capitalized. Sin is a power that enslaves humanity and all creation. People sin willingly and inevitably. We freely choose it, but there's also this gravitational pull towards it. In fact, Paul is saying we can't help but do it. We have corroborated with evil and undid the world. Sin is a power and something we do for Paul. The something we do is the symptom of being under the power. We are all under the spell of sin. 
Martin Luther, reformer, says the passage does not deal with men as they appear in their own eyes before other men, but as they appear before God where they are all under sin. But if our algorithms are true, we are also under sin even as we compare ourselves to other people. Sin for Paul isn't just bad acts. It's brokenness and fallenness and lostness. Everything that does not come from faith, Paul will say later in Romans, is sin. And all men and women and kids are under it. Even the Jew who had the law. And then Paul holds up the mirror of the law and shows how we are all under sin. Here in chapter 3, Paul pulls five passages from the Psalms, one from Ecclesiastes and one from Isaiah. The first section, the first entrance into the hall of mirrors is see your offenses against God. Go a little further down the hall, see the mirror of your speech. And finally, right before you enter the chapel, see the mirror of your neighbor offenses, the ways you have violated and hurt your neighbor. And the refrain from the magic mirror is there is no one. There is no one righteous. There is no one that understands. There's no one who seeks for God. There's no one who does good. Not even one. There's no one who fears God. No one hangs over the hall. Who is fair, O magic mirror of the law? There is no one fair. No one, not even one. There's no one whiter than snow. No one. We're all anti-God. None of us understand him. No one seeks God. We all turn aside. We all worship worthless things and become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What about our speech? We had this chat about resumes with my kids. And one of my kids goes, just lie. Just lie. So I go on this whole diatribe with that kid. There are seven things the Lord hates. Six of the seven, or three of the seven, are about lying. Our throats are an open grave. Our tongues are used to deceive. They're used to kill and injure. Paul says, venom of asp are under our lips. Everywhere we lash out, we seek to harm. They're full of curses and bitterness. Jesus would say what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. And with our neighbors, our feet are swift, which means we run. We run to shed blood. We walk a path of ruin and misery, and there is no way of peace. 
Karl Barth says this after reading this text. He says, the whole course of history pronounces this indictment against itself. In other words, Barth says, history condemns itself. If all the great outstanding figures in history whose judgments are worthy of serious consideration, if all the prophets and the psalmists and the philosophers and the fathers of the church and the reformers and the poets and the artists were all asked their opinion, would one of them assert that men were good or even capable of good? Is the doctrine of original sin merely one doctrine of many? Is it not rather, according to its most fundamental meaning, the doctrine which emerges from an any honest study of history. And then Paul, as an overlay, says there is no one who fears God. You see, everything, all of this, flows from a disregard of God. This is who we are. Our failure to fear God makes it impossible for us to know God. Now remember, as we think about fear, it's a complex thing, but it deals primarily with proximity of relationship. To fear God is to fear actually the distance that might separate us and God. We, if one fears the Lord, they want no distance between themselves and the proximity of the Lord. They fear any sort of gap. So what Paul says is that no one cares about the gap. And in our attempts to deal with these realities, what do we do? We create our own gods. And then those gods have their own hall of mirrors that go along with them, meant to showcase our glory and our renown. And what those hall of mirrors end up doing, they end up acting like a funhouse of mirrors. Have you ever been to a funhouse? What happens to your image in the mirrors of a funhouse? It gets distorted and twisted. When we create our own gods to deal with our reality of sin, little G-gods that we can worship and give our renown and our lives to, the image of God, big G, becomes distorted and twisted, and so does our image. Where our twisted image then becomes the standard. This is all Paul's been trying to say is we create a standard of the law in the vacuum of not being able to live into God's law, and that little L law twists us and distorts us all the more. But that becomes our hall of mirrors and our ways to showcase our righteousness. We let the light come in and hit the windows so that the glory of our life, the castles that we built, might shine through even through a twisted and distorted mirror. So think about something good like justice. We want justice. We believe justice is good. But our versions of justice are replete with errors and flaws. We do justice and we say it's blind, but it becomes twisted by our failure to honor God and honor humanity. We try to met out justice and become even more unjust in the ways that we give it out and the ways that we measure it. 
The very ways that we measure what we're meting out confirm our biases about justice. So we can't do justice. The English Puritan Ralph Venning wrote a small book called The Sinfulness of Sins. Michael Byrd, quoting on it, says, I think the title conveys an important point, namely that sin is utterly consumed with its own nature of hostility toward the holiness of God. As Vinning wrote, sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, altogether sinful, and always sinful. Humanity and sin becomes all the more sinful. In the domain of theology, this tenet is usually called the doctrine of total depravity. That is not to say that human beings are incapable of goodness or that they are as maximally evil as they can be. No, total depravity simply means that from the cradle to the grave, our natural inclination is towards sin. And sin is like a virus that infects every facet of our existence, including our desires, our intellects, our imagination, and our behavior. And sin leaves us stranded in a funhouse of mirrors of human misery where we sink deeper and deeper into the reflection of its depths. All the laws, both from God and ourselves, end up telling us the same thing, Paul says. You don't measure up. The law, Paul says, stops Every mouth. The law says, we're all the same. There is no authenticity amongst us. We're all sinners under sin. Dave Zoll riffs on this. He says, is there any bigger travesty in a culture of authenticity than to be cliché? We're told, for example, to just do our own thing or to live out our truth. But what if our thing is just what everyone else of our age does? What if our truth sounds curiously identical to the guy across the street who's been quietly judging us for years? This sameness constitutes a transgression against the authenticity edict, albeit an alarmingly common, dare I say, universal one. We all like sheep, have gone astray, just not in terribly dissimilar or fresh directions. It is in these moments when we're experiencing such easily forecasted problems that the insufficiency of self-knowledge is laid bare. Our mirrors, in other words, can't help us. And here, there is a painful realization, especially for those of us who's grown up confident that education and awareness are enough to prevent sin and suffering. Alas, they are not. Yet, that doesn't mean there isn't hope for cliched people with cliched problems. The Apostle Peter was told in no certain uncertain terms, Zal says, that he would deny Jesus three times when it most mattered. He protested vociferously and then did exactly that. One denial would have made sense, but three? There was a point in time when I might have chalked up the repetition to poetic license. No longer. The man sounds recognizably human. His predicament, my own. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. We know, says Paul, there can be no doubt. No one can feign ignorance. If arguments from reason and experience fail, then Paul says, witness the law, the very words of God. James Edwards, the commentator, says, humanly speaking, all avenues of escape from God's wrath are sealed off. The law makes us accountable to God, and no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing it. The law can't justify it. So a reader before this might have concluded that if one fulfilled the law, he could be saved. But in a new slant, verse 20 excludes even this possibility, assuming one could keep the law. Total fulfillment of the law cannot produce salvation, Paul says. Observing the law cannot remove a person from a cloud of condemnation, which results in being under sin. That is not the way to a restored relationship with the Creator, because the law, even if adhered to, is not sufficient to resist the power of sin. So what then is the function of the law? Paul says, the law brings us knowledge of sin. No rescue from it, but knowledge of it. So why should we be thankful for the knowledge of sin? Why should we be thankful that as we craft our own hall of mirrors and we see distorted image after distorted image, or we walk into God's hall of mirrors and we listen to the law and we hold ourselves up against it and we say, my reflection does not look like that. Why should we be thankful for that? Because sin then becomes a tutor to lead us to God. Edward says, in the law, we hear our own condemnation. Only when the defendant gives up all hopes of defense. Imagine yourself standing right there with God. You've sinned again. You've walked through the mirror. The law tells you you've sinned. And you sit there in that moment. What do you do? Do you attempt to defend yourself? To start to nail up to your wall all the ways that it really wasn't that bad? Well, the law keeps humming. It keeps dragging you, keeps taking you down the hall, leading you to the chapel. Okay, if not this, then this. If not this, then this. If not this, then that. Only when the defendant gives up all hope of defense, all thought of parting his or her own case, all boasting, only then can the person hear the verdict of the judge. And the surprising verdict it is, the sentence is not justice. Getting what one deserves, it's grace. Getting what you don't deserve. That is the holy, unexpected news of the gospel to which Paul will now turn for most of the rest of Romans. Hopefully that's what you're feeling, because, man, I'm feeling it. Like, dang, man, we've been talking for, about sin for a lot of weeks. See, Paul's purpose in Romans 1, 18 to 320, it's not been the intent of the frightening diagnosis to force the patient to accept a radical cure. 
There's no thought in the Christian faith of coercing one into the kingdom of God out of fear of punishment. Rather, the condemnation of human unrighteousness presupposes grace. It's not even a prelude to it. The non-believer seldom sees the hollowness of his or her righteousness apart from the light shining through the window, the light of God's love and grace. This was true in Paul's case, right? Far from being disappointed of himself prior to his conversion, Paul considered himself a moral and righteous individual. It was only after his encounter with the forgiving Lord near Damascus that he looked into the true mirror and discovered all the fake and all the colored glass. He says, whatever was my prophet, I now consider rubbish, dog do, lost for the sake of Christ. The law holds up a mirror that condemns. Because we're consumed in sin, the solution must be to be consumed in something else. The abounding nature of sin in the human subject can only be defeated by the superabounding grace of God expressed towards us who live in a hall of mirrors of our own creating in Jesus Christ. God holds up the mirror that is Christ, and that alone can save And so Saul says this, maybe the solution to our problems is just as cliched as the problems themselves. The old chestnut about Christ and him crucified. Could it be that God forgives us not only our sins, but even our predictability? That was certainly the case with Peter. Maybe the only authenticity that counts is that of the mercy extended on the cross to those who had acted out their unseen and unflattering script to a T, those who became what the mirror said they were. The freedom of the Christian then might mean more than freedom from oneself. It might also mean freedom from the most damaging cliche of all, that we are loved according to our, not according to our specialness, but according to our shared need. You are loved, not because you're special, first, foremost, but because you're needy. God wants to rush to you in Christ to meet your need. The miracle of the divine algorithm is imputation. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest? Not me. I am not the most fair. I am not that special. I'm just needy. And the mirror says, look to Christ. And the gospel is Christ imputing to us his life, his righteousness, rectifying for us all the ways we damage the world in our sin under its power, all the ways that we continue to damage the world under the law. And it says, look to Christ. He is the true mirror. Stare into him. See what he's done. By giving you a righteousness that's not your own, it secures you and anchors you from the outside in. The objective work of Father, Son, and Spirit in redemption imputes to you beauty, truth, and goodness that you could never achieve on your own. It says, look to Christ. Become what you are. Become what you see. That's a power that can remake you. That's a power that can enable you. And that's a power that can change you. Let's pray.
God, we come and ask that your spirit would do its work in us and help us to see. Help us to see the hall of mirrors, both the ones that we've created and the ones that you've given to us in the law that are meant to lead us to the true mirror, to the end of the hall, to the chapel where Christ is. May we walk that path with Jesus, seeing that Jesus has atoned for every sin. And that Jesus has given to us what we could not earn. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.